Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Pre-Hospital Podcast. season two episode four a slightly shorter episode than normal but hopefully just as valuable uh, in this episode is the second part of my conversation with dawn kerslake a consultant midwife of south east coast ambulance service about maternity emergencies in pre-hospital care in terms of pre-med i'm sure you want to know what's going on we've got a few face-to-face events including our level one and level two ecg course uh, as well as a few online webinars including ecgs and preparation for rsi which we'll be advertising shortly Please do check that out. It is on www.prem-ed.com. And that's about it from me. Let's get on with the episode. Um, there's a few other complications that are worth discussing, I think. And um, I think it's useful to, to, to talk about bleeding, isn't it? And so, yeah, definitely. So we talk about antepartum and postpartum hemorrhage. Um, which is best to discuss first, do you think? Well, let's do antepartum first, because there's so little we can do for that. It's very easy. Um, yeah. So in, in all of our obstetric emergencies, there's something we can do. We can generally try to make situations somewhat you know, better. But unfortunately, antepartum hemorrhage, generally speaking, needs an obstetrician, a shed load of blood and an operating theatre. Um, so there's very little any midwives or uh, ambulance crews can do in the pre-hospital setting. So as you've all taught me, diesel is the best medicine for these women. <laughs> so get her to hospital as soon as you possibly can with a definite pre-alert and, a, and an idea of how much blood she's lost. If you've got time, I don't want you to delay getting this woman into the ambulance, into hospital. Take a very quick picture with your iPad of the scene so that we've got an idea of how much blood's been lost already. Mm-hmm. Um, 
or get partnered together up either or I was going to say, yeah, and, and you know, if, if uh, mum's bled into pads or clothing or whatever, just chuck that in a bag because that can it can be useful Absolutely. climate to assess. Definitely, yeah, it's really helpful to know how much she's lost, and then go and then, as I say, pre-alert. Um, most labour wards will have a have a theatre or a room ready for her and be ready to greet you as you arrive. Yeah, and then I think, like you say, it's the easy way to remember it is there's nothing we can do pharmacologically either because obviously we have TXA and, and a lot of trusts will have um, other medications for for postpartum hemorrhage. But none of that is applicable to the antipartum situation because baby's still um, inside mum and so it might affect baby. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that, Silas, because um, I, I use the same uh, example when I'm teaching, which is if the baby's still inside, no drugs. If the baby's outside, give drugs. Because yeah. <laughs> um, essentially, if you start giving any of our hemorrhagic drugs, um you can you can cause death of the baby mm. so it's a bad day at the office definitely definitely no drugs not even txa it's not licensed for antipartum hemorrhage yet now i say yet with big shouty capitals because i think there's a hope in the next year or so that that will be put through the research council and we will there is suggestion that it would be very useful for aph so it's something okay. that's coming i think but as it stands currently it's not licensed for use in antipartum hemorrhage so nothing at the minute Fine, that's posted. easy, easy to remember. And yeah. so, and so that takes us into postpartum hemorrhage then. Um, yeah. And I'm wary of of giving definitions because I'll probably get it wrong. But I think that's more than 500 mil in the first 24 hours. Is that right? Got it. Yeah, perfect. So 500, we'll use that as our our baseline. Um, and if you're not sure what 500 looks like, um, there are some things on the internet. But I think it, um, Amanda Mansfield by my work wife, who's London Ambulance Service consultant midwife, has put something in JR Cap to give you some rough ideas. Yeah, I've seen there's, um, there's pictures and figures in the in the drop down menus. And I always think, you know, we have 500 mil bags of fluid. Yeah. Um, so just as a kind of ballpark thing, you can, you know, we hold those and give those to patients quite often. And so that's the kind of amount of fluid, isn't it? Obviously, it's difficult to tell depending on what surface is on. Um, I've always got my tea towel and my bath sheets that I have strategically thrown an amount. I'm not going to say in case I uh, do this test on some of our colleagues, an amount of blood <laughs> on and I make them guess what's on it. Um, people are always we always underestimate blood loss. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are. You could be midwife, obstetrician, paramedic, you know, ECSW, whatever you are. We will all come up with a different number, which which tells us that we're all useless at guessing. So weight is the only way to really know for definite. I was going to say there's there's been a, a an amount of literature around um, blood loss estimation and trauma and like you say anyone in pre-hospital care is pretty bad at it is the yeah we're all mind. it's difficult um, isn't it it's very subjective and uh, but I think in reality you know we've got this definition but obviously we're not going to be with mum 23 hours after they start bleeding I mean hopefully not um, and so <laughs> it's more for for <laughs> us whilst that um, definition is there for us it's probably more about the rapidity with which they're losing blood and the, the volume that you can you can see has been lost in a short amount of time for us to recognize there's definite emergency that we need to address and whether it's ongoing so you know a slow trickle does become quite a considerable loss over a period of time mm. so um you know, some people are falsely reassured by the fact oh it's only a trickle yeah but how long has she been trickling for so um so yes you're quite right the, the one that everybody fears is that catastrophic hemorrhage where it genuinely looks like someone's turned a tap on between her legs they're rare they're really rare but when they happen you've got to hit the ground running and let's just run through shall we from the top uh, we've walked into somebody who is having a hemorrhage. The first thing I want to do is put my cupped hand at her umbilicus and start massaging. Mm -hmm. Massage that 
individuals. Again, I know we said 70% for shoulder dissociation. I haven't got my numbers wrong. It is 70% for this as well. 70% of hemorrhages are caused by a uterus that has not contracted. Uh, so it's talking about uh, tone. So uterus yes. like tone, yeah. And it's sometimes called atony or atonic uterus. You don't have to remember these terms. Basically, when you put your hand at mum's umbilicus and you start to massage it, it'll feel like jelly. Yeah. Um, and you'll start to you'll start to massage it. it. You know, it doesn't really matter if you go clockwise or anticlockwise. I, I naturally go clockwise. Mm -hmm. um, as you start to massage it, you should start to feel a sort of a, a hard cricket ball size lump under your hand form and that's the uterus now contracting and what you need is the uterus to do this long sustained contraction because that ties off all the blood vessels mm -hmm. so the best possible thing you can do for any woman that's bleeding is to massage her uterus uh, and keep going at it you don't stop until the bleeding stops and then you can take okay. your hand away but you keep looking between her legs because you might take your hand off and the uterus might relax again in which case you'll start bleeding again so then right. it's hand back so you keep massaging until the bleeding has stopped and remains stopped. And don't do what I did as a newly qualified midwife, which is deliver a woman. Or she delivered herself, actually. Help a woman deliver. And then um, promptly threw the blankets over her, popped her off to bed for a nice sleep after, you know, half an hour or so. And then I went back an hour later. I still don't know to this day what made me check, but somebody was watching over me and mm. I had her. And when I went back in, she was unrousable and she, you know, the bed was claret. So that was a classic example of don't leave a woman and put her to bed straight after delivery without checking on her regularly. Yeah. So definitely, definitely massage the uterus and keep an eye on it. And um, so, and, and physiologically, the so the the um, tissue in the uterus is this kind of cross section fibre, isn't it? And right. so, so by doing that, you kind of cause that contraction, which brings those fibres close together and, and closes that mesh off, which seals the blood vessels. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yes, spot on. So the, and the complication. So, like you say, seventy percent of that. Obviously, the the other percent. What I'm trying to remember is the four Ts, um, which is <laughs> so you've got tone, yeah. and then and then there's this thing of retained tissue, isn't there? Where, um, so if you try and get the uterus contract to contract, and it, it may try and contract, but if there's retained tissue, um, it affects that process. Is that is that right? Yeah, you're right. So basically, the uterus recognises a foreign body and doesn't contract very well until that's removed um so it's not we're not very efficient in this regard at all sometimes you can have a little bit of the membrane which is uh the other word for the bags of water um, and it can be stuck in the cervix or in the uterus um and that causes the uterus to not contract and right. so you're going to have to massage her uterus all the way in and we won't know that pre-hospitally it's not until mm -hmm. you get to the hospital and that we do a scan or a visual inspection you know um internally that we will see a little bit of membrane or placenta left behind and then generally speaking we pull it out um, give some drugs to make the uterus contract and she's fixed that's generally how it works um, but in the pre-hospital we don't have a scanner yeah and I so um, you may remember I we, we spoke a few months ago about a lady that I looked after who um, went on to have a postpartum hemorrhage and I with us she wasn't bleeding a lot and she just kind of suddenly started to bleed later on um, which I found out subsequently and there's something you mentioned which stuck with me around how um we could have recognised that potential to happen, which was um, the um, inappropriately high amount of pain she had um, with delivering the placenta. So so she um, baby delivered and that was normal. And then she had a little bit of pain and that pain then progressively got worse, um, which is not normal. Is that right? 
So she was having lots of after pains, I think, from memory. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah, so the after pains are the uterus trying to contract. It's desperately trying. It knows what it's got to do. It's trying to contract back down. But for whatever reason, it isn't. Mm. Um, and that situation. Did your lady have retained product, Silas? I can't remember. I think she did. Yeah, I think she had a small bit of retained tissue. And, and yeah, which okay, again, so like you say, was kind of removed and that was fine. But and then she'll something get we didn't to... realise at the time. No, but then why would you? You know, it's not your area of specialty, is it? Um, it's it's one of those things. And retained tissue does cause bleeding and it can happen for even, you know, it can happen days after delivery. Suddenly a woman starts to bleed again um, and there's a little bit of tissue left behind. This is why midwives, the crazy as we are, we're all obsessed with examining placentas post-delivery because we want to be sure that it's all there. Yeah, and if it's yeah, not, yeah. it looks a bit raggedy. We'll document that in the notes to say ragged membranes or placenta query complete so that if I've delivered the woman today and you go and visit her two days later, you can have a look at my notes and say, oh, actually, Dawn wasn't ever so sure that this was all complete. And then that'll plant a seed in your mind that maybe there's a reason that she's spiked a temperature and she's feeling really, really unwell. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fair point. Nice. And and so, um, so uh, tone tissue. Shall I test you or shall I help you? Trauma. Yay. <laughs> one of them. Okay, yes. I'm nearly there. You're there, you're there. Um, so, so, tish, uh, so trauma, yes, we've done tissue. Trauma, um, so this is generally uh, perineal tearing. You can have urethral, clitoral tears, labial tears. They can go anywhere around that sort of 360 of the mm-hmm. vagina. And you can also get high vaginal wall tears and cervical tears. Now, they, they bleed particularly heavy. Um, you don't always know that's what it is because it's coming from higher up. Uh, you can't see the perineal, the perineum bleeding. So you assume it's coming from the uterus. But actually, when you get her inside to hospital, uh, that's when people sort of start to think, oh, no, actually, it was a cervical tear. Um, but again, just going to massage the uterus and go. Um, continue to give all your drugs as you normally would. So let's just run through those then. So we've got uh, mysoprostol for all of our road staff. That's mm-hmm. a uterotonic. A uterotonic is a drug that causes one long sustained contraction of the uterus. And the oh. other uterotonic is Sintametrin, which our CCPs carry. So we've got two uterotonics that we can use. It would be lovely for all of our colleagues to have Sintametrin, but unfortunately it needs to be kept in a fridge and we don't have fridges on the ambulances. Yeah. So by giving it to a smaller cohort of staff, of which I think the CCP cohort's about 70, isn't it, Silas? Uh, yeah, around that. Yeah, around about that. Um, Seventy of you, we can afford to throw your centimetrin out uh, every two months. We mm-hmm. can't really afford to throw away the centimetrin of every single clinician we have in the trust. It's a cost pressure. So uh, we've given it to you because you are our maternity champions, whether you like it or not. And yeah. um, and and the rest of our colleagues carry misoprostol. So we've got two uterotonics. And then we've got TXA and you're all familiar with TXA. Um, It works brilliantly with postpartum hemorrhage and don't underestimate the value of it. People will always ask me, what order do you give it in? And the order I always say is all at once (laughs) if there's enough. Or if you have to choose, then I would always give a uterotonic first and I'd probably go Sintometrin, Misoprostol, TXA. But ideally, if you and I were on scene, we'd be hitting her with both of them. And in hospital, we'd hit her with a lot and more. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, yeah, okay. So, so those three drugs doesn't really matter what order. Um, and essentially, it's probably going to be in the order of the quickest you can give. Or the yes, you know, because some of them like TXA will take a while to draw up and get a cannula and stuff, I suppose. Um, okay. Is, is there anything else we can do? Oh, so uh, 
So, we yeah, the other thing, absolute extremists that I, again, it's, it's not in JR Calc, um, but it's something that some of our clinicians have been taught is bimanual compression. And this mm-hmm. is absolute extremist. This is, she's bleeding so heavily, I, I, you know, it's pouring out of her and everything I'm doing is not working. And then you might consider uh, doing what we've, what's called bimanual, which is one hand in the vagina, making a fist as high as you can. And then the other hand on the outside of the abdomen, pressing down on that fist internally, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, you to google that but if you were ever in a situation where the woman was bleeding catastrophically and none of your measures were were working uh, a you need to be leaving and going but in the ambulance you might want to consider it on the way into hospital um either way you need to get out of there and get her to hospital um not something that's common very very rare unlikely our clinicians our colleagues will see it in the pre-hospital setting but it's there it's it's there isn't it and it's our fear all of us that it could happen and to be fair, in terms of the decision making to do that, I think, you know, that's an, a question that often comes up. And, you know, we've we've been over this in training and it's certainly a question that came to my mind. Um, you kind of think, when when would you do that? But I, I guess realistically, those presentations are pretty obvious. Um, yeah, they are. kind of your peri-arrest leading person. Absolutely. She's, you know, she's altered conscious level or or looking that way, peri-arrest and there's blood pouring out of her. There's no other circumstance when you're going to consider it. Um, but in that circumstance, you would. Yeah. Um, okay. And so, so uh, tone, tissue, trauma, uh, thrombus, thrombus, thrombosis, thrombin. Thrombin. Something. Yeah. Thrombin. Yeah. Thrombin. It's something like 1% of women this is. So we don't need to focus on this too much. And these are women that perhaps are haemophiliac or uh, right. take blood thinners. They are out there. There aren't very many women of childbearing age that are on blood thinners, but they do exist. So just to be aware of them um, and and to to ask the question, if you've gone through tone trauma tissue and she's still bleeding, you might want to have a little ask of, is she on any blood thinning drugs that you're aware of? Is she a known haemophiliac? You know, is there anything that I'm missing here? Um, It's not going to help your management necessarily. You, You still need to get her to hospital, but at least you know why she's bleeding. Yeah, and it's something is information to pass on as well, isn't it? Which is which is helpful. Absolutely. Fine. Okay. The, the next thing to discuss then, if that's okay, is um, this antenatal emergency of, of cord prolapse. So it's something we we see. Um, you know, I've been to a few cases of this. Um, what what is it, and what can we do? Okay, so cord prolapse is one of those horrible emergencies where you really do have to act quite quickly and efficiently and get the woman to hospital. So basically the cord comes out, the waters have to have broken in this scenario, obviously. The woman's waters break and the cord slips out, um, normally because there's nothing in the pelvis. So if you've got a baby that is in the breech position, there's no head in the pelvis acting as a plug, if you will. And so Mm -hmm. the cord swishes out uh, into the outside world and then sometimes the baby follows it now if the baby follows it it sort of cuts its own circulation off on the way out if you imagine that the baby then takes up quite a lot of space in the birth canal and can squash the cord flat Um, and so we we never really know what's going on inside but we have to assume the worst and that is that the baby has has cut its own circulation off does that make sense yeah yeah absolutely so it kind of the the baby enters the birth canal as well um, and collapses that cord so it can't continue perfusing and exactly that. that kind of hypoxia exactly that and then the other risk is that as the cord is outside um there's two things that will make it vasospasm um, and therefore it's not pumping effectively for the baby and that is the cold air so the cold makes it um spasm mm-hmm. and touch 
if somebody's touching it, that will also make it spasm. So if a woman rings up and our EMA colleagues take the call, they will be told to not touch it. They will probably be told to adopt the knee chest position. So when we arrive on scene, the mum will probably be sat with her bottom you know, in, in the exaggerated prayer position, if you like, head to the floor, bottom in the air. And that's yeah. just simply to get the weight of the baby down towards the head end of mum and mm -hmm. take the weight of that cord in the vagina. Um, so you'll probably walk into a woman in that position, which would be most odd. Um, and then you really need to get that woman sort of get a rapport quite quickly because I would go into the address check first that it's definitely a core prolapse because I have had situations where people have thought they've seen a cord outside and it actually wasn't. Um, so check that there is a cord present and then I would be getting everything ready to put the cord back in the vagina because the best place for it to not get cold is in the vagina, it's warm and the best place for no one to be able to fiddle with it is in the vagina because it's warm and squishy and it's likely to be better placed in there. Mm -hmm. So I would be saying to mum, in your own time, I need to get you over onto your back. And then the cord that's come away, I just need to very gently pop back inside you. And then I'm going to put a sanitary towel and a pair of knickers on to stop it coming out again. Mm -hmm. Is that OK? Consent's obviously a big issue with anything we do internal. Um, and then if mum says that's OK, I'm going to say, say it's you and I again, Silas. I'm going to ask you to go and get everything ready so that we can leave with immediate effect once I've got the cord back in. And then it's a case of cord in pad knickers and then walk her with relative haste to the truck and then get her onto her left side once we're in the ambulance and again I might try and put a bag of fluids or a blanket or a pillow or anything I can lay my hands on underneath that left hip just to try and take the pressure of the baby over and towards mm -hmm. the wall of the ambulance if you like just to try and take the weight off the cord does that make sense it does and there's something I feel you may have breezed over slightly <laughs> Um, which is just popping the cord back inside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, yes, it's not as easy as that. And I'm glad you mentioned it because um, I sort of talk about not touching it and then people get really worried about having to handle it to put it back in. Yeah. Um, so we do have to handle it to put it back in. It's not going to levitate itself back there. So um, you're not going to get it in in one swift move. Um, so Silas is right to pick me up on that. You're <laughs> going to have to probably give it a couple of pushes in and that would be okay it's to minimize the amount of handling of the cause and that's the cord that's the important important thing to take away from this so essentially one kind of purposeful attempt at getting the cord back inside and because uh, the, the other thing you see, i've seen in guidance is um warm wet gauze and wet gauze and dry gauze kind of handling the cord and stuff what do you think yeah. is the best approach just that's kind of hands-on put it back inside and accept the fact that you're going to touch it for, for yeah, a short scrap all that. yeah scrap all that pad some I mean there's one I think one document I read said use a pad to put it back in you know it's really fiddly don't bother get rid of the pad just use a gloved hand and the warm thing it's all well and good but if you walk to the nearest sink and put a, you know put a sanitary towel under a hot tap by the time you've walked back to the woman it's already cold or tepid so yeah, it's, yeah. it's a it's a little pointless, to be honest. Um, yeah. Get the board back in, pad knickers, go. Fine. OK, so that solves that one. And and, yeah. and um, like we said before, the logistics and stuff, obviously the kind of optimum position is um, on your knees, face down. Well, not yeah. you, but the mum. Yeah. Um, but obviously we, it's difficult with transport. So, so when you say kind of lying on the left lateral tilt, um, is that the kind of optimal yes. position accepting the logistics of transport, I guess? 
exactly that. I mean, you're right. In an ideal world, we'd keep mum in that exaggerated prayer knee chest position. But for the reasons of transportation, we can't do that. So that's why the left side is 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 what we plumb for um, and, and get that hip elevated and over. Try and get the pressure off that way. Cool. All right. Thank you for that. Um, and so the last thing then to discuss is um, seizures in pregnancy or, or preeclampsia and eclampsia, if that's OK. Yep. Um, and so to start, can you define preeclampsia versus eclampsia? So we really get that definition down. Yeah, of course. So um, preeclampsia is the condition that you will get ahead of pre- ahead of eclampsia. So the, the pre bit is the giveaway. So you get preeclampsia. <laughs> potentially in pregnancy and generally speaking it's after 24 weeks gestation so you should be able to spot that somebody's pregnant unless they've got a raised BMI. So um, when women come to antenatal clinic we test their urine for protein, we do their blood pressure and we have a general examination of them to check they're not too swollen. So if they've got two out of three of those they're generally thought to be highly suspicious for preeclampsia and they'll be then sent into um, the hospital to have bloods done and blood pressure profiling done. Um, if they are deemed to have preeclampsia, they'll be given an antihypertensive and they'll be watched much more closely during the pregnancy and they'll have consultant led appointments and midwifery ones. They'll have shared care probably. And mm-hmm. provided their blood pressure you know, is, is managed at a reasonable um, uh, rate, then they'll be kept um, you know, in that shared care domain and she will possibly be considered for early um, induction if the blood pressure becomes unmanageable towards the end of pregnancy. But otherwise, you know, if, if it's all OK, she's left alone. The issue we have and where it becomes tricky is that there are always going to be women that have no antenatal care. And those women obviously may have developed preeclampsia unknowingly, but because they've never had any antenatal care, they won't necessarily know that they've got it. They might feel unwell, they might suffer with headaches, they might have had blurred vision, they may have felt out of sorts, but they won't necessarily have thought that it might be a condition that they've got that's developed in pregnancy. So um, those are the women that sometimes we get called to that maybe then become eclamptic. And the eclampsia part is the full fit. So you become eclamptic once you have your seizure. And so if you go to a woman who's having a seizure and she's had no antenatal care, the likelihood is she's got eclampsia. Fine. And, and so there's a couple of take homes or, or kind of um, things to pick up on in that for me. And one is that obviously um, as specialist paramedics, we have magnesium. And yep. um, one of the indications for magnesium in preeclampsia is hypertension that's relative to being pregnant, um, which I think can be surprisingly low in the context of the normal presentations that we see in, in pre-hospital care. And so I think the the definition for us is 140 over 90 is that right yeah that's about right um which is you know in in a in your average patient that's not particularly concerning um and so it's something to be aware of in this context absolutely um so yes you're quite right you carry it silas um our colleagues the rest of our ambulance colleagues don't carry it so if you go to a woman who's pregnant who's having a seizure you need to consider which is nearest your nearest hospital or your nearest ccp it magnesium works very well very quickly um and uh it's a great drug for for preeclampsia or eclampsia so um, always try and get a CCP running to that. And in fact, we do. If somebody comes in as pregnant and seizuring, you guys generally run to it. Yeah. And, and in terms of the physiology then or, or pathophysiology, the, the, the cause for the seizure is um, cerebral edema. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So 
And because the, the, the question comes up, especially around patients that are epileptic and pregnant, around if they're having a seizure, do you treat for eclampsia or epileptic seizure? And I think for, for me, I mean, I'll get you to answer the question, but for me, it's useful to remember the pathophysiology that we're giving magnesium to try and reduce the cerebral edema and take away that um, irritation of the entire brain versus a benzodiazepine to stop the innate kind of seizure process. Um, and for clarity, if you do have a fitting patient who's known epileptic and but is pregnant, what do you treat for? So um, I've always said to Cruz, if they if she's known epileptic, then it's not going to hurt to give her whatever her normal anti epileptic is. That's fine. But she still needs to be taken to maternity unit because the likelihood is it's an eclamptic seizure. We generally t t treat, I can't speak, treat seizures in pregnancy as eclamptic until proven otherwise. Mm. Fine. So and so for those of us with magnesium, we give that and then but then continue to follow the normal epileptic seizure kind of guidance. Um and but but like you say the the kind of the thing to rule out is eclampsia being the, the case even if they don't have documented history of preeclampsia hypertension and stuff with their with their pregnancy absolutely because you might not have any history you might not have any antenatal history whatsoever there may be nothing um, but then there's always going to be those odd women those odd one or two that have actually been perfectly fine throughout pregnancy and then suddenly develop you know uh, crushing eclampsia right at the end it's unusual but that, that they exist they are out there yeah okay Cool. Um, any, anything else to add in terms of the preeclampsia eclampsia stuff? I don't think so. Um, this is one not to hang around with as well, because every time the woman's having a fit, the baby is suffering some sort of hypoxic insult. So um, do need to consider getting the woman to hospital as soon as you possibly can. I guess uh, that's, that's another kind of good point, actually, because with a non-pregnancy, you know, a, a, a normal seizure, you'd stay on scene and try and optimise their seizure care. Yeah. Um, and so I guess in this situation, you just want to have a bit more of a push to to rapidly convey, Absolutely. especially in the context that the benzo might not be effective if, if that's not the reversible cause. Yeah, definitely. And the other thing I would say is this is one of the maternity emergencies that you can take to ED because ultimately right. this woman, you're not going to take her straight to theatre. The only treatment is delivery of the baby. So mm -hmm. you do need to deliver the baby, but you're not going to take her to theatre when she's got, you know, ridiculously high blood pressure because she'll have a stroke. So you do need to stabilise the blood pressure first in ED or wherever she ends up. She may get taken up to maternity, but wherever um, mm -hmm. before you then consider taking her to theatre for, for, for cesarean section. Or if she's and, very and it, well managed, then they may consider inducing her, but, you know, less likely. Yeah. And, and again, in terms of communication, I think there's a um, benefit to be gained there from when you do the priority call to A&E to say this is the complication and, and request that uh, maternity or obstetrics are bleeped and made aware. Um, because yep. depending on who's answering the phone, I've had that complication a few times or that a few times where um, someone who's answering the phone is relatively junior and maybe don't, don't understand that entire process. And so it goes through their filter of understanding. And sometimes you can turn up to a team that doesn't include all the people you want. Um, exactly. yeah, yeah, really important to get that message delivered. You're quite right. Um, and get the right people waiting for you when you arrive. Cool. OK, well, thanks for going through that. Um, I think that's all I had to discuss, really. Um, so in summary, <laughs> yay. Um, so so in summary, you know, we kind of discussed the normal delivery, and that is, uh, you know, 95% of the time or more, um, that we'll have a normal physiological delivery. And so, like you say, the the thing to do there is relatively easy in terms of assisting with delivery and optimising the situation for for parents 
um, because ultimately it's a normal thing that's a big part of their life. Absolutely. Um, but I guess to have just in the back of your mind a few, a kind of awareness of the signs of complications that you've discussed, um, which may lead you down a certain pathway of, of treatment. Um, and so we've discussed the management for, for breach, for shoulder dystocia and bleeding complications and seizures and called prolapse. Gone through quite a lot. <laughs> Gone through quite a bit, haven't we? And I'm sorry, yeah. because probably people are desperate for us to stop talking now, but um, <laughs> paused and come away. And come back. Yeah. Um, yeah, fine. Well, well thanks for doing that. Is, is there anything else you think we didn't cover or anything else to just make a final point on? No, my other one top tip and then I'll leave it. Um, if you've got to take somebody out of a property going downstairs and you think the baby might deliver, put her dressing gown on, put her arms in and pull the back of the dressing gown up through the front as a ready-made baby catcher. Nice. OK, I like that. That's a good tip. That's a tip. Um, and then nobody needs to go down the stairs backwards with their hands between a woman's legs just in case he's... <laughs> yeah, I like it. That's a, that a great tip. Absolutely. Perfect. I'll leave it right. Perfect. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate the um, you taking the time to come and talk to me again. No uh, problem at all. It's a pleasure. It's been some useful stuff. All right. Thanks very much. I'll speak to you soon. Take care, Silas. Thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.